my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. What up, Oasis fam? I'm so glad to be with you tonight. Uh, we are stoked to continue in our Cultural Quicksand series. And so if you missed last week, you can always find the message on YouTube or the podcast. But I want to fill you in on what this series is. As you were watching that video, we call that in the church world a bumper video. So now you get a little lingo. But as you were watching that video, there were some words that popped up on the screen. And if you didn't know where those are from, no worries. It's actually a quote from Jesus. That in John 17, he says that, and across time through our cultural Christianity and just some of the things we do here in the church, it's become a different saying. And instead of something like that, we actually say something now that says, as Christians, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Maybe you've heard that before, and it can be kind of confusing. Like, what does that even mean? At its simplest form, when we're called to be in the world, it's literally what you're doing right now, that we're just supposed to be here. That Jesus in his prayer, he, he says, I wish and I thought that I would be taking you out of the world, but he hasn't yet. That we still are here and existing, and so that's what we're going to continue to do. You've done that part. But the second part of that gets a little bit confusing. What does it mean to be in the world, but not yet of the world? And that's where Jesus tells his church, the people who know him and love him, his followers. He says, while you live in this world, you're actually supposed to be distinctly different. That the church is supposed to stand out from culture. And so this series steps into that saying, into the verse of Jesus, and begins to look at how do we navigate culture in Christ? And we're looking at three topics. Last week, we covered morality. Jesus raises the bar to a place we'll never get, but he also fulfilled that. And so in him, we can have our morality. Tonight, we're talking about money, and we're going to look at how God calls us to use our finances. And then next week, we're going to look at our minds and how Jesus teaches us to use our minds and to, to, to renew our thoughts and to walk in his way. And so there's going to be this beautiful part of this series because the hard part of every one of these topics is they're like quicksand. That for some cultural things, like we can kind of toe, like dip a toe in or like get close. When it comes to our mind, our morality, and our money, when we start to get too close to what culture is doing, it quickly sucks us in and we do not look like Christ anymore. And so now as I begin to talk about money, I want us to just kind of shake it out a little bit because we get weird when it comes to money. Like there's like three things you don't talk about, money, sex, and politics. Like we talk about politics every once in a while just to inform your Christian opinion. We've talked about sex. Like we've been there. We've done that. Tonight we're talking money. We're not scared to hit these topics, but we need to get, like everybody just deep breath. It's okay. The ch we can talk about money in the church. This doesn't need to be weird. But the problem is sometimes with our church history, you maybe have been at a place where you've struggled to, to see how the church has treated money or how the church has asked for money or maybe you've sat in sermons like this that just make you feel uncomfortable or, or different things. And tonight, I hope we don't do that. I actually hope that God's heart shows through his word and that we can take a step into a healthy view of money. That as I grew up, I had these kind of weird encounters with money and the church and all these different things that I don't know. At my church, used to, we used to do it here. We used to pass the plate and it'd be like you'd be sitting there and like Aunt Linda would like hand you the plate and give you the nudge. Like you're like, get out of here, Aunt Linda. Like there was that awkward cousin who would like look at you and be like, I know you need to put money. I know what you did this last week. You better put something in the pan. Like church gets kind of weird about money sometimes. And tonight I want us to do something different and I want us to push away from that. 
I want us to step into God's healthy design for money. That when we're here tonight, I want to tell you that the church actually doesn't want to take your money. That tonight, I don't want your money. And you're like, what? Dylan just asked for my money. All right, all right, I'll clarify. Dylan asked for your money so that it could flow through us to Detroit. We're asking for your money so that we can be a generous ministry and go alongside of our team to bless the community that that God has given us to work with. And we are not keeping a penny of that. Just like he has said, this is a special offering that we want to be generous with ourselves. And so take a deep breath. We're not passing the plate tonight. There's Venmo stickers out in the lobby since we don't carry cash anymore. But again, that's for the special offering only. Not only do we not need your money, but also God doesn't need your money. That should be another deep breath. It's like, whew, God doesn't have rent due next week. Like, everybody calm down. Like, he's not trying to float a utility bill in the middle of January. Like, he's good right now. God is okay. Grace Point, doing great. Past, if you look back, we are in a great financial spot because people in this church are incredibly generous. It blows me away. We don't need your money. God's idea of money actually flows from Psalm 24.1, where it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He is not lacking tonight, and we don't need to step up as a bunch of college students and young adults and fill that gap. But here is what God wants. God does not want to take your money. He just doesn't want your money to take from you. Let me say it again. God doesn't want to take your money tonight. He just doesn't want our lives to be taken by money. That money has this power. It's weird. It's why it becomes one of those three we don't like to touch. Like, we don't like to talk about it. Every time someone brings it up, it gets uncomfortable because it has this power over us that unlike so many other things, money is weird and it it pulls us in different directions and it touches like parts of our heart that we just don't like to talk about. And so when we're talking about money, we need to push aside some of that, that power that it has and begin to speak into what God would want of us because money is an important topic. Money matters so much. It's a vital topic to Christianity and to us as young adults here tonight. That really, when we look at it, Jesus taught on money over 2,000 times in the Gospels. To put that in perspective for you, he taught on prayer about 500 times. That Jesus spoke on money four times more often than he talked on prayer. 15% of everything Jesus talked about was money-related. He knew it had this power. He did not want his followers tripped up by their bank accounts. He wanted them to live in God's design. And the crazy part is every single time Jesus taught on money, not once, go look for yourselves, not one single time was the focus of his teaching on the sum of money. It was never on the quantity. Not once, every single time, 2,000 times he mentions money, not once is it about the sum. Because he realized And I've realized, and I hope we realize tonight, that money, it's not a numbers issue. That money is a heart issue. That for us, it goes deeper than just our wallets. It's a part of who we are. It's something we wrestle with. It's not a quantity thing. In Mark 12, if you have a Bible, I'm going to read you a quick story just to kind of illustrate this idea. Mark is telling this story on the perspective of Jesus, and in verse 41 he says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury, which is like kind of weird, like Jesus just sitting back watching people donate, but he's God, so he he knows how much you're giving, so I guess it's okay. But he went on, and, and as many rich people threw in a lot of money, large amounts, 
But a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins worth only a few cents. Jesus makes a big deal and he calls all of his disciples to himself and he says, truly I tell you, this widow has put in more to the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. If I was going to recount that story for you, essentially what happened during this time is they would go to worship at one temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, there were these things called chauffeur chests. And there was a box on the bottom, and then there was this round trumpet-like metal shape on top. And in that time, they didn't have paper currency. They only had coins. And so Jesus starts to chill and sit back because he would spend a lot of time in these courts and in the temple, and he starts watching people donate. And what he describes in this account is that many rich people would pull up with huge sacks of money. Like they are pulling up to the bank and they start dumping in the coins. But remember, there's this metal cone that they're dumping it into. And so it became this tradition that as they dumped it in, they would make it as loud and as obnoxious as they could, that the whole temple would look and understand, oh yeah, they're donating. They're dumping in the coins, it's hitting the rim. It's a huge, loud fiasco that everybody in the whole place knows. And Jesus sits back and he watches this time and time and time again. Huge quantities of money, tons of rich people. And then this poor widow shows up. For her to be a widow in this day would have meant she probably would have had no financial status. That in the culture, the man was the one who worked and made the money. That was how their culture was. And as she would have lost her husband, she probably would have lost her main source of income. That it's believed she maybe was even just living off the Jewish poverty system at that time. And she walks up and she takes two small copper coins. The word used here is to describe the smallest donation of money that they possibly could. Takes two small copper coins, she drops it in the bucket. Compare that story to the huge amounts of money that the rich people were shaking in there and it was a spectacle for everyone in the whole entire temple. Nobody would have noticed two pennies dropped in the bottom of that box. But Jesus makes a huge scene. He calls all of his disciples to him and he says, that woman, she gave everything, all she had. Because her two pennies, it wasn't a something for Jesus. Otherwise, he would have praised the large amounts. Instead, he saw behind the two pennies and he saw her heart. That the woman gave everything she had and she was willing to trust God with what would come next. And so from a story like that, I can stand up here with a little bit of confidence because I can speak to a group of college students and young adults, <laughs> we ain't got a lot, right? Like everybody, we could take another deep breath. Okay, he's on the same page. We don't have a ton of money. Like that's just usually with our demographic how it rolls. But just because we don't have a large sum does not mean we don't have a ton to gain here. That as we speak on this tonight, this is not just some abstract concept we're stepping into. That this is not just some like Dave Ramsey certified course that I'm trying to preach to you. This is the word of God that's meant to bring healing and transformation in our lives. That that power money has over us, that the power it wants to have over us, that tonight we can experience some of God's transformative healing when it comes to money. That no matter where you were raised or what financial situation you grew up with or you have now, no matter what your spending habits are, you're stingy or you spend everything, God has a word for us tonight that can teach us what it looks like to have our hearts rendered to him. So to do that, 
I need us to first look at how culture tells us to use money. And then we'll flip the script and we'll look at how God tells us to use money. First of all, culture teaches us that money provides happiness. Now, I understand that cultural money can provide momentary happiness. Like I got a box of shoes up here. Maybe for you it's not shoes. Like picture whatever you really like to buy. Like is it, is it clothes, is it food, is it vacations, trips? You picture that thing. When you secure the bag, like that feeling is nice. Like when you get a new box of shoes, like you open it up and it's like the smell of new shoes. Like some, of pe- some people out there are like new car smell. No, new shoe smell. I'm telling, get into a champs. I'm telling you it's where it's at. Like I need that in my car on air freshener mode. New, sh- I love buying new shoes. And there is momentary happiness there. I am so excited. I'm pumped to be able to get a new pair of shoes. But you know what the hard part is? No matter how hard I try, somehow shoes always end up like this. And these don't smell good in this box. That I, some of us out there, we don't want our Jordans to crease. But I'm telling you, no matter how long and how hard you try, your shoes and your possessions, they end up like this. The vacation ends, the clothes wear out, they go out of style, they no longer hold the same value to us that they once did. And so this money idea that it provides happiness for us is a false illusion. That for a second it hits us with happiness and all of a sudden we're now running this rat race to get back to that place where we can feel that happiness again. That the happiness it provides is momentary and it's constantly fleeting. Culture then teaches us the same idea when it comes to stability. Culture teaches that money is stability. That if you can have a big enough bank account, then you finally will achieve peace, freedom, and control. That the peace of God, which we hear about, will come through a paycheck. That's what they're promising you. That if I could finally stop worrying about the first every single month when rent is gonna hurt so bad. I have got a mortgage, people. I'm telling you, the first hurts. Like, if we could just stop worrying about that, Oh, the peace that would come if I didn't have to worry about a school bill, if I didn't have to worry about a car payment, if I didn't have to worry. I mean, the freedom, like anybody got a wish list of stuff you just love to buy, vacations you'd love to take. If our bank accounts were just big enough, we would have the freedom to do that, right? And that freedom would provide happiness. Or like anybody believe the lie that money brings control of our lives? That if I just stop bouncing from check to check to check, if I just stopped stressing, if I just had that happiness and that freedom, I would finally have the control over my life. That when I look to the future, I wouldn't have to worry. That if I have a significant other, I wouldn't have to worry if the card's gonna get declined. I wouldn't have to worry if I'm gonna be able to care for my kids one day. I wouldn't have to worry about their, the control that money alludes us to. But you know, in 2019, 137 million Americans we're in a tough financial situation because of medical debt. That is one third of Americans. And medical debt is this weird one. Like I'm not talking, they, they made poor choices financially and they, they dug themselves into a hole and they racked up credit card debt or student loans. Like medical debt is this bad luck, tough thing that you can have incredible health insurance and get in a terrible car accident and all of a sudden have loads of medical debt that you maybe never will pay off. 137 million Americans find themselves in that situation two years ago. A third of Americans, the wealthiest nation in the world. 
This ability that money will teach us that it provides happiness and stability, it's an illusion. But they also, culture teaches us to love money. The way I see this play out the most often is when it comes to, for, for our people, college students and adults, is how we make major decisions like school or career decisions. Now, you don't have to raise your hands. I'm not going to put anybody in that, but we made some major decisions like where, what we were going to do at school based on money. I am in that boat. Like when I was coming to SDSU, I wanted to do pre-law. You want to know why I wanted to do pre-law? I thought it would make me the money. And now I'm a pastor and I'm second only to pre-law. But when, when I came to SDSU, I picked up majors in economics and communication studies because we didn't have a pre-law major. And I started studying that for a year and eventually God changed that. But as I was going to school, people would ask, like every single aunt and uncle, what major are you going to do? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to do pre-law. And then the first time, I'll never forget it, the first time someone said, what kind of law are you going to do? There are different kinds of law. <laughs> and so I, I like fumbled through it. I got out. It was awkward. I was embarrassed. I was humbled. I walked away and I Googled what type of lawyer makes the most money. <laughs> and on that list, corporate lawyer. And so every time someone would ask, be like, what kind of law are you going to do? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to do corporate law. And then they'd hit me with the second question. What's that? <laughs> they like, uh... They do stuff with uh, like contracts and mergers and, uh, and then I get stuck in that hole. And to this day, I still can't tell you what a corporate lawyer does. Like I have no idea. But I knew they made a lot of money. And so I came to SDSU with that in mind. And I see us time and time again forego our gifting and our passion. Throw that out the window in order to chase dollar signs. The whole time culture is telling us to get. That's how I'd sum this up. That I t- this analogy comes from a pastor that it's always stuck with me. That culture, when they tell us to get, they, we function as a pale. That life, fulfillment, happiness, and stability is all about getting more. And so we choose majors and jobs, and we do make decisions, and we do all of life just trying to fill up this pale. That hopefully one day it'll be full enough, and I'll be content. That's the cultural idea. But we work one job. And then we're like, ah, you know, it's not quite as full. And we get a second job. And then at those jobs, we actually pick up more hours. And then after we pick up more hours, we get a side hustle, you know, like I'm on Instagram influencing. And all of a sudden, I'm taking my money and I'm investing it. And the bucket's still not full. And my life is still tough. And the thing culture doesn't tell you about the pail is if if there's actually holes in it, that you actually have to start now spending that money. And so as much as you try, your pail will never be big enough that you will never get enough money for the happiness or the stability or the fulfillment that culture is promising you. But they teach us get, accumulate, store up, bigger, more, all the time. This is this cultural idea. Let's flip the script. God steps in and he has something to say about money. And in Matthew 6, he gives us some investment advice. So if you'll turn there, we're going to read... Verse 19 through 21. In verse 19, Jesus gives us a piece of incredible or really bad investment advice. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Oh, rewind. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. If I would have got that wrong, this whole thing would have fallen apart. That's Jesus telling us this is a bad investment. That I just spent like 10 minutes telling you how culture tells you to be a pale and to get more. 
Jesus in one verse said everything that culture is telling you, that's a bad investment. That if we will store up our money, our treasures, it's like hilarious, like what, what is this, Peter Pan? Like store up our treasures on earth, it's going to fade. He uses the example of moths because oftentimes when people, they didn't have bank accounts, and so something they would do is they would buy really nice clothes and they would then store these clothes as a, as a way to secure their money. But in that time, they didn't really have the structures and the, and the homes and the things that we have now today. And moths would come in and they would eat the clothes. Or they would bury coins. And as they buried those coins in the ground, the ESV version of the Bible talks about how not vermin destroy, but talks about how rust destroys. And those very coins that they would put in the ground would disintegrate. And their storehouses of wealth would disappear before their eyes. Today we have our money in paper or cards. But isn't it so ironic that the very thing that we use for money quickly fades in front of our eyes? That this thing, I don't need, I don't need to get the stinky shoes back. We know money doesn't last. Things don't last. And so Jesus turns and he gives us a great piece of investment advice. In verse 20 he says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is telling you, this is a good investment. Invest in heaven. The hard part is we get lost in what Jesus is talking about and how to live that out. Because you can't go pull up to Wells Fargo and be like, yeah, I'm going to open an account, but I'd like to do it in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, (laughs) that's not going to fly. You can't pull up week after week and just drop off a 20 and be like, yeah, put that under my homie Jesus. Like, it's not going to work. How do we invest in heaven? This is all about investing in heaven is a life of generosity where God tells us to give. Remember what culture was telling us? They were telling us to get, that you become a pail, and your objective of life is to fill that account. The whole time, God is now telling you something distinctly different, and he is calling you to be a pipe. Now, this is the contraption that I made this week. Shout out, Lowe's. Uh, But God tells you to be a pipe, because as God blesses us with resources and generosity, he doesn't want it to just stay with us, but instead, he wants it to flow through us to go into the world. That as God consistently will give you financial resources, as he stores up treasures for you, he wants it not to stay just with you, but to flow through you as a pipe into the world. And now you're panicking because you're like, you're going to run out of water and the pipe's still not full. But God is a heavenly father where he will not run out of water like I will. And so this pipe never runs dry. That if we will trust God with our finances, he will do an incredible work through us and in us. That that generosity, it will never tap out that God wants to consistently pour into us, but only if we will function like he wants us to. That if we will store up as a pail, this is a bad investment for God. That he is about returns on his investment. He will not give it to us if we're like this, but if we are like this, living in his design, willing to give freely, willing to be generous with our finances, that is the way God consistently blesses his people. We're so constantly functioning thinking about the pail when God has called us to the pipe. We are so constantly thinking about the next deposit when God has just asked us to disperse our resources, to give away. And that is where your money meets the gospel. That the gospel, the beauty of Christian life is that Jesus was generous for you. That he literally gave his whole life for you. 
that God is generous in his nature and as people made in his image, we are meant to be generous in our nature. That there are people who need your finances, even if it's small. The kingdom of God is meant to be built through the way that we live different with our finances. And so when it comes to investing in heaven and living generously, I wanna give us two steps. The first one is an incredible first step and it's called tithing. Some of you just cringed. You're like, ah, tick. Like, it got weird because I said that word. But if your parents or your grandparents taught you that, praise God, because that is a gift. Tithing is this Old Testament principle where you give the first 10% of your income back to the local church. It comes from the Old Testament in Genesis, let me double check my facts, 14, where Abraham, the father of our faith, he met with this priest and king named Melchizedek. And when they had this interaction, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he owned. But the crazy part about this interaction is it wasn't just a one-time story for us to read, but it actually changed how they functioned financially in the Old Testament. That because Melchizedek was not only just a priest, but a king, he functioned in this symbolic role of what Jesus was to be to come. That Jesus, when he came, he functioned in a three-role kind of way. He was the prophet, he was the priest, and he was the king. So Melchizedek becomes the shadow of a figure that will point us to Jesus. And so when Abraham pours out his 10% and he gives it to Melchizedek, it's supposed to be this symbolic image for us to give our 10% to Jesus. That's beautiful. It's crazy. It's a great first step. That today we are still supposed to live in some way stepping into this precedent. That we are still called to this 10%. And the reason I, I love it, because it becomes a baseline, that's why I call it a first step, is because the problem is when we, when we struggle with finances, we think it will get better when we get older, but oftentimes it just gets harder. That if you have significant others or spouses or homes or, or, or jobs or your bills start to, like, it gets more, not less. And as all of that is pulling on you, your income might raise. But let me tell you, if we haven't learned how to be generous with our 10% now, we won't be generous with our 10% then. That right now, if we have $10 and we're not willing to give one, if we ever have the blessing to make 50000 I promise you, you won't give the five, or if you do, it will be really hard. But if we start now to live in God's generous design, to start to be the pipe that he has asked us to be, to let his resources flow through us to others, it can be incredible. And when I talk about tithing, there is this importance that we function it in the local church. That I've heard people come and they'd be like, yeah, I give, but I give 10% to a local nonprofit. I love that. That's incredible. Praise God. That's a great option. But based on what Abraham did, based on what scripture teaches, based on what I feel we're still supposed to live in, our call is to the local church with that first 10%. Now don't freak out. Maybe you go somewhere else on Sunday morning here in Brookings. Give there. <laughs> I, I am promising you, give there. Like, we don't need your finances. The church does not have a bill due. That's just not why I'm preaching this. We want you to begin to live in God's design to experience the freedom. And so wherever you want, whether it's at your local church back home, whether that's at a church that you've always been passionate about, whether that's at a church you go to Sunday morning, whether here in Brookings or back home, I don't care where it goes. It just needs to go to a local church. And if Grace Point becomes that for you, then let me promise you, as a church, we're a pipe, not a pail. 
that as you give here, I will not get a bonus. <laughs> I'm gonna promise you that. I'm not, no, this sermon is not getting me a raise. But if we're willing to be generous, places like Mosaic in Detroit, or the ministries that we partner with in Dearborn, one of the, high, the highest Muslim population in America, they might begin to experience God's blessing through us as a church, as Grace Point. That's the beauty of the first step. The reason I keep calling it a first step is I think there's a second step. It's to go beyond a 10% into generous living. Now remember the way I started this is it's never been about a sum. That God does not have a number in his head that once you hit that, all of a sudden you're good. 10%, 5%, 8%, 14%, that's not enough. Like, there is no number to meet God's standard. That the New Testament has replaced that and it said, now our lives are to be generous with everything. If I can be honest with you, this is where I'm at as your pastor. That for a while I've been tithing, I had the blessing of having a, a sermon like this, and I was like, ooh, felt, felt convicted and terrible and hard. And, and so I, I did it, and I started to tithe, and I felt God's blessing there, and I felt the freedom, and I felt the, pow the, the power that money had over me start to diminish, like it was incredible for me. And now I'm in the season of life where God's asking me to go beyond that. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, what does that look like? Like when I come alongside you as your pastor, I'm given to the Detroit team. I'm going on the trip, but I will, I will partner with you financially there. I'm looking at which missionaries do I need to support? What nonprofits are in town that are doing things that I'm not doing that I can help support? Where are the widows, the orphans? Where are the poor? Where are we going beyond just a baseline 10 so that God can grip our hearts and use that money to build his kingdom? That's what we've been called to. That's what it looks like to truly live in God's design. Now, in both of those investment advice, Jesus has given you what you should do and why. He said, this is a bad thing, this is why. This is a good thing, this is why. Now, in verse 21, he takes a look at the why behind the why. Verse 21, it says, for where, there is treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If I were to reinterpret that, I would tell you where you invest your resources reveals your heart and it directs your heart. So where's your heart tonight? If you don't know, based on your finances, you could open up your bank account, you could get the little app, you could track your purchases, I could sit down with you, and that would be really fun, and we could tell you where your heart is. Some of us, we love Starbucks, like bleed green. <laughs> we are there all the time, like investing $12 on a drink in, in the, the non-English words, like come on, let's do small, medium, large at some point. Like, that's why I'm a Cool Beans guy. Like, if you were to look at my account, it's like, whoa, you go to Cool Beans, like, a lot. It's like, yeah, I like Cool Beans. And so you can see, start to where my heart is. But if I were to take a look again at my life, one of the ways I saw this really play out is how I used to date. I used to hate dating. Like, I, 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 it was awful. Like, I just didn't like it, and it was because I was dating the wrong people, but that's all another conversation, and I was the wrong person, like, let's be honest, but don't judge me, come on. I didn't like swiping the card. Like, to me, it felt like a bad investment. I was like, ah, oh, you're cool, but like, this isn't going anywhere. Like, do I really gotta get dinner? Or do I really gotta buy a birthday present? I'm telling, stop, you guys are judging me. Like, everybody back off. I didn't like dating. I started dating my wife, it was weird, it like changed. My family's like, you bought dinner? It's like, what? <laughs> and, but all of a sudden, my heart was different and I didn't mind investing in our relationship. I would buy dinner and birthday presents. I would be generous because it was revealing where my heart was. 
But not only does our money reveal where our heart is, it directs where our heart goes. And so has anybody ever bought something expensive? Maybe it was like a car or like a piece of, maybe it was shoes for you. But I remember when I bought my car for the first time, I took care of that thing like it was my baby. Like, you are not eating in this car. Are you serious? Like, there is no trash on the ground. I'm getting it washed all the time. I'm, I'm dusting it off on the inside. I'm making sure it's full of gas, never below a half tank. Like, I'm taking care of my baby. But it's because I had invested a ton of money that I all of a sudden cared about this car. When it was sitting on the lot, I didn't care. When the money was in my account, I didn't care what happened to that white Mazda 3. When I sat in the driver's seat and I put the key in, now I cared. I, all of a sudden, my heart was gripped because my money had gone there. Can I tell you the kingdom of God functions in a similar way? That when we start to give our heart to the mission of God, whether that's as a missionary, and we start to support a missionary and give generously above our 10%, and we see, oh man, I actually really care what's happening in Turkey now. I actually really care what's happening in Africa. Like the things that are happening in the, in the Philippines, my heart is there because my resources have gone there alongside of a missionary. Or maybe it's the local church that you've come on Sunday nights and you're really gracious for Oasis, but you don't have a local church you're giving at and so you're not really bought into the Sunday morning vision anywhere. But if we start to give generously, if we start to give the 10%, if we take these steps into God's design, I'm telling you, your heart will follow. Finally, Jesus, I'm gonna skip to verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That in this, Jesus is summing up his teaching. That when it comes to this financial conversation, he recognizes the power that money has. And he says, you will either serve money and become a pale and spend your whole life trying to get more, or you will serve God and you will be a pipe and you will let resources flow through you generously to those around you. And there is no middle ground between that. That if we are trying to live between the two, you are choosing money. You are living in the world of the world. But if we will choose God's design, we will live in the world, but be different than the world. Tonight, <clears throat> we're gonna have, we used to do this all the time, and I, I hope to bring it back in some ways. But we, we're gonna have like a two to three minute quiet time after I preach. And so the, the band can come up, and as they play, they'll lay down the keys, so we'll make it all nice, you guys can, it'll be relaxed, and we'll be like stiff, awkward, quiet. But as we have this time, one of the things that we used to always do with it, and what I want us to do tonight, is prayerfully reflect on what God's been teaching. That the reason we offered this special offering through the series was not because I wanted to walk into the office of the pastor in Detroit and hand him a check. To be honest, I don't know if they necessarily need our money. I haven't asked. That the reason we started this special offering and it goes throughout the whole series is because I wanted us to have an opportunity to put into action what God was doing in us. And so for maybe for you tonight, this two to three minutes becomes a time where you just pray and ask God, would you have me give? And if he says no, don't. There is no pressure. There is no conviction. I'm not checking the names. I'm like, that is not at all what's rolling here. I want us to experience God's design. I want us to experience his healing, his freedom. I want us to put into action the words that he has taught us. I want us investing in heaven. 
And so there are Venmo posters out there because we don't carry cash. There are boxes if you want to give cash. But again, this isn't, this isn't for us. This is an investment back in God's kingdom. So take this time. I'm going to pray. And take the time to pray. Would God have you give tonight? What would it look like for you to be generous with your finances? And it's not a sum thing. It's a heart thing. And so maybe for you it's a small amount. But it hurts. God will be pleased. Maybe for you it's a big amount. I don't know. I'm not. (laughs) Do what God asks of you in this moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open your word and learn from you. I pray that you would now open our hearts to receive from you. That in the way that you have just offered this opportunity, that you even put it on my lap to now put it before our people. That we have a chance to partner with you and to to increase the the mission in Detroit to go powerfully alongside of our missionary team that's going to serve there, God. That we have the chance to be the pipe that you have designed us to be, to live in your freedom. And tonight, maybe, God, we give for the first time or we step into what it looks like to give. That there is just this freedom and this healing that comes that your spirit would fill us. And, And it might hurt, God, but there is healing on the other side. That so long we have lived in this culture with broken pictures and definitions of what it looks like to find financial stability, what it looks like to build bigger bank accounts, what it looks like to strive for fulfillment and happiness and stability. But God, you say, I have offered you all that. And I thank you that tonight we have the chance to accept you in that offer, to take whatever you've given us and to hold it loosely, to give it back to you and to glorify you and build your kingdom in that way. I pray that it would be so in Jesus name. Amen.